Father, we praise you this morning. Uh, we are creation. Uh, you created us for your glory, um, and yet you came down into what you made for us. Uh, you took on humility. You didn't just take on a human form. You took on the form of a servant, a carpenter's son, a man born in a stable, in a manger. And then you lowered yourself even further, and you became a criminal on a cross for our sake. And so, Jesus, we thank you this morning. God, I pray that your humility would sink deeply inside of our souls today. God, that we would see Jesus, who was crowned in heaven, coming down to earth for us, for our sake. And you didn't count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but you made yourself nothing. We thank you, Jesus. Lord, we um, thank you for the opportunity this morning to hear your word. God, I pray that um, it be preached faithfully, that... Um, what is heard in these seats would, would be what you want people to hear, that you'd move in hearts, Holy Spirit. There's no power in me this morning. The power is in your word, is in your spirit. So come and work in us today. We pray for the churches in our community, in our nation, that let them preach the word faithfully. Let your church rise up and be awakened as we do. So we praise you this morning. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through 18. Um, if you're new here with us this morning, my name is Coleman Collins. I'm the associate, associate pastor here, um, affectionately known as the other guy, uh, until Tim came on staff, and now he's the other guy. Uh, so you're welcome, Tim, for that, that title. Um, uh, so, uh, but if you, if you don't know, if you haven't been with us, or if you don't remember what you have for breakfast this morning, we have been in a series through Philippians. We're on the third sermon, and so we're going to be preaching on Philippians the rest of this semester. Um, so we typically go back Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. So this semester we are in the book of Philippians. And last week, Andrew taught on um, the Philippian church and how they were partnered with Paul in the gospel. Okay, and that, that was the main point of the message, that this church had partnered with Paul in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. This week, Paul is continuing that thought, and he's talking about how the gospel is growing. The gospel is continuing to grow in Rome through his ministry. So I'm going to read this passage for us, and then we're going to dive in. So look with me, Philippians 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, he's talking about imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So Paul has a fruitful ministry. He's traveling all over Asia, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's planting churches, and, and hundreds of people are coming to know Christ. It's unbelievably fruitful. He's the, one of the greatest evangelists ever known. Right? So he's having this incredible ministry. He's going all over the world, and then all of a sudden, he's silenced in a moment. The Jews stir up the Romans, and the Romans arrest him, and he's taken to Rome and thrown in a Roman prison where he can't freely preach the gospel. He's stuck there, chained to another guard, unable to continue his ministry. And yet, here, what he writes to the Philippians church while he's in jail is he's saying, hey, the silencing that happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. The gospel is still going forward, and actually this has served it. It's going forward more than it was before because I am stuck here in prison. How's it going forward? He lists two ways. The first is the guard, the imperial guard, Caesar's court, is finding out about Paul's imprisonment. He's finding out that he's in prison for Christ. The second way is that believers in Rome, rather than being afraid of being imprisoned, they're actually emboldened by it, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're going out and preaching the gospel in their community. And so the kingdom is advancing. But before we move on, I just need to clarify something. That I think a lot of times when we hear advance the gospel, we think about a message, right? The gospel message itself. But, but the gospel is just a message. It's just the announcement. It's the announcement of something greater. What's the announcement of? Christ the King. 
It's the announcement of the kingdom of God. When Christ came down to earth in his ministry, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, you will see over and over again Jesus mentioned the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is like a tree planted in the garden that grows and bears fruit. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, he came to usher in this kingdom of God. The gospel is just the announcement of a greater reality, the reality of the kingdom of God. So when Paul says that the that the gospel is being advanced, he's not saying that his Jesus sales pitch is going really well. He's saying that the kingdom of God is growing among the Romans and in the world, right? And, and so that, that is his point in this, right? That is growing in two ways, among the imperial guard by his witness and is growing in Rome by the bold witness of the disciples, right? And so Paul's main objective in this part of his letter is to tell us that the kingdom of God is growing, just like Jesus said that it would. Regardless of the attacks of Satan, regardless of the Jews, regardless of the Romans, the gospel is still going forth. So what we're going to do today is we're going to spend all of our time answering this one question. If Paul and God are concerned about the growth of the kingdom of God, how do we join God in growing his kingdom? Okay? How do you and me, as Christians, as believers, join God in this work of growing his kingdom? What does Paul teach us in this passage about growing the kingdom of God? So, how do I join God in his kingdom growth? Our passage today, there are three things that cause the kingdom of God to grow, okay? The seed, the sower, and the fruit, okay? The seed, the sower, and the fruit. Now, if you've been with us any length of time, you'll have heard Andrew say that the metaphors for the kingdom of God are always agricultural, right? It's not manufacturing. It's not like you press a couple of buttons and get the right tuning and something's produced. They're, they're agricultural. Um, the, the typical metaphor that Jesus uses to teach the kingdom of God is that a kingdom sower sows a kingdom seed into good soil and it bears kingdom fruit. Right? And so those are the three aspects, the three things that God uses to advance his kingdom. So we're going to start by looking at the first one. And the first way that we join God is to cast the seed. If you're a note taker, write that down. Cast the seed. So look back at our passage together. What, what is the seed of the kingdom? Verse 12. What has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. So the gospel is the seed of the kingdom. Look at verse 14. At the very end of it, the disciples are much more bold to speak the word. So the spoken word is the, is, the, is the seed. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ. So the preaching of Christ is the seed. Look in verse 18, in every way Christ is proclaimed. So the seed is the proclamation of Jesus. The gospel, it's the gospel going forth. The words of the gospel spoken by someone else is the seed, okay? Now, I know it just happened in a lot of you. When I said that I'm about to preach on sharing the gospel, a lot of you Christians just had a reaction inside. Okay, was it a good reaction or a poor reaction? It was probably fear or terror or shame or guilt or overwhelmingness or confusion or whatever, right? Any series of, of bad emotions just welled up in you. And I said, you, you're like, man, I, w- I thought I was going to be sick. T- I, sh- I should have been sick today, right? Right? Because what, what's the reality? That we know that this is something we should share, and yet so often out of fear and out of guilt and out of shame and out of being just plain overwhelmed, we don't do it. And so we feel this sense of fear in us. Why is that? I think it is because we have reduced sharing the gospel to a one-time surprise sales pitch that we pitch on our unwitting friends, okay? Has anyone felt that way? That it's like, I've got to find the right moment and just like, like slide it in there, right? And if I say all the right words, if I say it at the right time, if I answer all the questions, then poof, a Christian, right? That's what, that's what we've come to know. It's magic words spoken at the right time. And most of the time, we have a bad taste in our mouth. Most of us in American South have had some street preacher come up to us and, and beat us over the head with the gospel, right? That's happened to us, and we don't want to do that to other people. And I think what happens is we misunderstand what Paul means by sharing the gospel. And so what do we feel? We feel icky, like a door-to-door salesperson, right? Or we feel afraid that we're going to ruin a relationship. Or we feel overwhelmed that we won't answer the right questions. Or we feel confused of, like, what order do I get it in? Like, did Jesus die and then rise and then heaven? Like, what do I say first? And so what we do is we, we just don't share it because we're paralyzed with fear and shame. But that is not Paul's intention at all. And let me tell you something. Our, our world is full of sales pitches. It's full of empty advertisements. It's full of fake people trying to sell you some promise. 
and, and people in our world are longing for something real, aren't they? They're longing for something genuine. They're longing for something lived. They don't want to hear an empty sales pitch. And let me tell you, Jesus has that on offer. He has real, he has genuine, he has life on offer. And the seed of the gospel is the beginning of that life in the heart of another person. So if the gospel is not a sales pitch, what is it, right? What is it to share the gospel? The word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means glad tidings. Tidings are some kind of news report, a news story, and glad is something happy. It's when the angels came and said, hey, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. That's what this is. In the Old English, we get our word gospel from the Old English God spell, okay? God meaning good, spell meaning, who knows what Old English word spell means? Anybody? No, story. Think about your spellbound. You're captivated by a story, right? Spell is story. And so the Old English word is good story. The gospel is the good story. The good story of what? The good story of the kingdom of God, how how he created us for himself, and yet we turned against him, and we pursued sin and ourselves and, and sought to build something for ourselves in this world, and yet in doing that, we broke relationship with God. And the good king Instead of staying in heaven and and judging us from afar, he came down and clothed himself in humanity and became a man, a human, a baby, a servant. And he lived a perfect life and taught the kingdom. But then instead of bringing in a new kingdom and becoming king, he died. He died because someone had to die. A sacrifice had to be paid for our sins. And then he rose again from the dead to show his power. And, And he's coming again one day to make all things new. That's the great story of the gospel. That's the good story I have to give people that we don't have to stay in our sin anymore. We don't have to stay in our emptiness and our brokenness, that there is a healer who has come to bring new life to us. I think so often we can reduce the gospel to a couple of magic words rather than knowing this is a story. And any any part of this story that we insert into someone's life is a seed of the gospel. I was, um, this past week, I, I studied through all of Paul's sermons, his his gospel preachings and acts, okay? I wanted to know what did Paul do, and there's 12 of them. And you know what I found? They're all different, and not like a couple of words, dramatically different. The, the, the beginning of the story is different, the climax is different, the end is different. They're all different. He shared about freedom from spiritual bondage in Antioch to Jews that were caught in bondage to the law. He did signs and wonders in Iconium to people who believe witch doctors who were also doing signs to show the power of God. In Lystra, he spoke about God as the creator to be worshipped to people who were trying to worship him and Barnabas. In Thessalonica, he spoke to the Jews about how the Messiah needed to suffer and die. In Athens, he spoke to the philosophers who had all these gods and said that God isn't served by your hands, but he gives life and breath and everything to all mankind. In Jerusalem, he shared his testimony with Pharisees because in his story, he was a Pharisee once, and he was humbled by King Jesus. To Felix, the judge, he shared about resurrection and judgment because Felix knew what it was like to judge other people. To Agrippa, to the king, he shared about light in the midst of darkness. To natives on Malta, he showed the miracles. In Rome, the seat of the emperor, he talked about the king and the kingdom of God in a place where the king dwelled. Why was it all different? Why didn't he use his gospel tract? right? Why didn't he use his bridge diagram, his three circles, his four spiritual laws? It's because Paul's aim was to take the good story and to meet people where they were at, to meet men, women, and children exactly where they are, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, slave or free, man or woman, child or adult, everyone. His goal was to take the story of Christ and to meet people exactly where they were. So the first thing we learn from Paul about casting the seed is it doesn't mean selling a script. It means helping people see where they are in the good story of God's kingdom. What about the second thing? The second thing we learn from Paul about casting the seed is that the power is in the seed. What's amazing about this passage in verses 15 through 18 is we have this story of two different people. Right? One type of person is sharing the gospel out of a great motive. They, they, they were loving other people out of goodwill, out of sincerity. And the other type is, selling, is, is preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition, envy, and rivalry from poor and bad motives. And yet, Paul says at the end of it, look in verse 18. What then? Only in every way, whether pretense, selfish, or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Why is that? Like, why is Paul rejoicing that ill-intentioned people are sharing the gospel? It's because the power is in the seed. 
The power is in the words of the gospel. Romans 1.16 says that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, what? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power is not in the person. The power is not in persuasion. The power is not in relationship. The power is in the gospel seed. The spoken word of Jesus is powerful in and of itself. It doesn't matter if it's from the mouth of an atheist, right? Can you think about it? An atheist. And, and listen, there have been many preachers who have come out to be atheists. Atheists preaching the gospel can save someone. A three-year-old preaching the gospel can save someone, right? You preaching the gospel, a false teacher preaching the true gospel can save someone. It doesn't matter the, the vessel. What matters is the seed. Let me tell you, this is incredibly freeing. It's incredibly freeing because who can share the good news of Jesus with anyone else? Everyone, right? You can share it. Have you been a Christian for two days? Great. Share the gospel, right? It doesn't matter what you don't know. It doesn't matter your inadequacies. We can share the seeds of the gospel, right? And some of you, some of us, feel like, I'm not, I'm not mature enough. I have been a Christian long enough. I don't know what to say. Maybe I'll get out of order. My, man, my life doesn't match up. And there's some validity to those things. But the reality is, is that you, if God places you in a moment, you can share the gospel seed and salvation can come to that person because the power is in the seed. Can I tell you about three people who Jesus sent out to preach the gospel unsupervised, okay? First one, the demoniac tomb dweller in the Gerasenes, okay? Remember that story? Like man was cutting himself, beating himself. He's lived years among the tombs, was filled with a legion of demons, okay? Jesus comes, casts the demons out, sits the man down, puts a cloak on him, and tells him the hope of Christ. He becomes a Christian, and then he says, hey, can I follow you to learn to share the gospel? You know what Jesus says? Nope. Go back to your hometown and start preaching the gospel. That dude, all right, second person, the prostitute in Samaria, right? The Samaritan prostitute had all kinds of whacked up theology, right? And she's coming to the well during the day because she's too ashamed to come at any other time. And, and she has, five, has had five husbands. She has a man now who's not her husband, like living a prof- prolifically um, immoral life. And Jesus comes and shares the hope of Christ with her. She becomes a Christian, and then he sends her off to her town to share the gospel immediately. Doesn't say, hey, keep quiet, okay, until your life is better, all right? He doesn't, he doesn't tell her to, like, zip it, okay? He, he says, go, share the gospel, and people come to Christ. Let me tell you the third one. Judas, Iscariot, like the one who would betray Jesus. Jesus sent him out with the 72 to preach the gospel, knowing that Judas' heart was false, knowing that Judas had an issue in his heart. Let me tell you something. I think that you're better than those three, Okay? Maybe not, okay? But even if you are like those three, like you can share the gospel, right? The power is in the seed. And so Paul is calling you and me to join God in his gospel work by casting seeds, by sharing the story of God's great love, the story of our sin and brokenness and separation, and the story of a good God who came down to earth to rescue and redeem us and is coming back again to make all things new, right? God is calling us to do that. So the question is, how do I cast the seed? What does it look, how, how do I do it, Coleman? Like, please tell me, okay? Do what Paul did. Let me tell you what he did. First, he looked around himself. He looked around to see the souls that God had placed around him. For you, look around. Who's God placed you around? Who are the people, family members, coworkers, people at the gym, who, your neighbors, who are you around? The second thing is to begin to see them through the lens of prayer. When you begin to pray for someone, Truly pray, what you begin to do is you begin to see them like God sees them. He begins to lay scripture on your heart. He begins to remind you of things. He begins to give you a love for them, and you begin to see them as Jesus does. The third thing is get curious about who they are, about their struggles and their delights, about their background, about their religion, about what, what, what do they think about God? Have they ever thought about God before? What do they believe about him? Why do they believe that? Where do they get that? Have they ever been to church? They've been hurt by the church? Get curious. Be interested in their life. And then fourth, meet them where they are and share with them the hope of the good story. It might be that that person needs to hear about their brokenness and sin. Share about their brokenness and sin. It might be that that person needs hope. Share with them about the hope of Jesus. It might need that that person needs true life. Like they have been wrestling with their own weakness. Share with them that Christ raised from the dead and they have true power through the Holy Spirit. They'll trust in Christ. Share the good story. Meet them where they are. You don't have to answer all their objections. You don't have to answer all their questions. You can bumble around. You can be ineloquent, but meet them where they are with the gospel. So if the gospel spreads through gospel seeds, 
right, then there has to be a sower, okay? So if, if seeds are being scattered, there has to be a sower. Like your grandpa said, them seeds ain't going to plant themselves, right? My, it was just my grandpa. My grandpa says that. Them seeds ain't going to plant themselves, right? So there has to be a sower. And so we have our second way that we join God in his kingdom growth is trust the sower. Trust the sower. That's the second point. In Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew, there's a man who goes out to, to plant seeds in a field, okay? And some falls on good soil, some falls on bad soil. And the question is, who is the sower? Is it Paul? Is Paul the sower? Are you sharing the gospel? That's right. Is it, is it Andrew? Is it me? It's Jesus. It's God. God is the sower. God is the one who does it. Look at verse 16 with me. Some people preach Christ out of envy or rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing, is what they know, that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Paul's saying, I am put here, like placed in prison for the defense of the gospel. Let me ask you, who put Paul in prison? God, but who put him in prison? The Romans, thank you, the Romans put him in prison. Who stirred up the Romans? Who stirred up the Jews? Satan, right? Satan stirred the Jews, and the Jews stirred the Romans, and the Romans put Paul in prison, and yet, like Brit has told us, God put Paul in prison, right? He says, God has put me here for the defense of the gospel, right? That's why he's there. Yes, Satan stirred in the hearts of the Jews. Yes, the Jews stirred up the Romans. Yes, the Romans put him there, yet God in his sovereignty used all these forces of evil to place Paul exactly where he wanted him in jail, silenced for the sake of the gospel. Why? Why did he do it? Because Paul wasn't the sower. God was the sower. God's the one preparing hearts. God's the one sending missionaries. God's the one calling people. God's the one convicting people. God's the one working in people. God is the sower. Paul is just a a workman working in God's field for God's glory. You know how much freedom it is to know that God is the sower? That he is the one at work among you? Let me tell you something. You will never beat God to work at someone else's life. Ever. You're never going to be the pioneer missionary in someone else's life. God has already been working in them since before time. He's the one that wrote eternity on their minds. He's the one that wrote a conscience on their hearts. He's the one that has been bearing witness through creation that there really is a God. God is the sower. In 1 Corinthians 2, um, there's some disciples in Corinth, the church there, and they're arguing back and forth about who converted them. Some people say Apollos did, who came in after Paul. Some people said Paul did. And so Paul writes in this letter, and you know what he says? He says, Apollos didn't convert you. I didn't convert you. God did. God converted you. God's the one that grew, grew you. And then he says this, Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Let me take out the double negative out of there and say this. Him who plants, Paul, and him who waters, Apollos, is nothing but only God. Guys, in the greater scheme of God's picture, we are are nothing. God God is all. He is working in the hearts of people. So then what are we? If If we're nothing, what are we? Paul goes on to say this. We are God's workmen, and you are God's field. We are God's workmen and you are God's field. My role is to be a fellow workman under God, to to till the field, to plant the seed, to cover the seed, to water the seed, to nourish the seed, to watch it grow, to protect the seed, to weed it, to to make it grow, to to, to nourish it so it will bear good fruit. That is my role, partnering with God. So our role is this, to trust the sower and to live as one who has been placed. Will Will you begin to do that? Trust the sower and live as one who has been placed. Trust that you have been intentionally placed in the places where you are, in your family, in your your school, um, in your business, in your gym, um, in your school board, um, coaching your rec sports team, right? That career you have on the side. Like God has put you there for the sake of the gospel intentionally, and then be available to God for others. Be available to God for others. Are you married? I don't care how you got there. I don't care if if you were 
out of your mind one weekend in Vegas and you got married. Like, are you married? God has placed you there for the sake of the gospel. Are you available to God for your spouse? Are you a parent? I don't care how you got there, right? I don't care if your kid is not who you thought your kid would be, right? None of them are. But God has placed you there intentionally. Will you be available to God for your kids? Are you, are you a worker? Are you, are you a business owner? What are you? God has placed you in every sphere where you are. Look around you. He's placed you there. Will you be available to him for the people around you? You are his workman. And what do I do? You do whatever God the sower needs you to do in that life at the time. It doesn't all look the same. I know we have giftings. I know some people are incredible evangelists. Some people are incredible at disciple making. Some people are incredible at getting to know non-believers and tilling the field. But that, we need to remove this idea that I only operate where I'm gifted. You operate where God needs you to operate in the lives around you. Does the person around you need soil tilled in their life? Do they need a godly example lived out before them? Live that godly example. Does someone around you need to hear the gospel because they've never heard it before? Then you have to share the gospel seed. That's your calling. It's the person next to you, they just become a Christian. They need to be discipled. You need to do a Bible study with them. You're scared to death to do it. God's placed you in that relationship. That's your next step. We are fellow workmen by discerning what is God doing in their life and partnering with him in it. So how do I trust the sower? First thing, it means trusting that he is already pursuing the people he's placed you around. So you don't need to diagnose whether they are ready for the gospel. They are, because he's put you there, right? And you can walk in faith with that. And the second thing is it means trusting him when you're afraid. When you're afraid of not knowing the words to say. When you're afraid of ruining the relationship. Trusting that God already knows the end from the beginning. And that whether it's good, bad, or ugly, whatever the result of your conversation or your moment with that person, God's got it under control. And he's going to work it for your good and the good of that purpose and his glory. He is the sower. Will you trust him? Will you trust the sower this morning? So we cast seed. We trust the sower. But let me ask you this. What is the goal of the sower? Fruit, right? He doesn't just want to sprout. He doesn't just want to plant. He wants fruit, right? Is everybody on the same page with me? I plant a fruit tree. I want fruit. I, we bought a grapefruit tree three and a half years ago um, from Home Depot. And that tree has borne me one grapefruit a year, okay? One, all right? I bought that tree because I wanted grapefruit. Like, not one grapefruit. Grapefruits, plural. Like, I wanted copious amounts of grapefruit because I love grapefruit, and yet my tree bears me one grapefruit a year. Do I, what, are, what are my emotions towards that tree? Anger, right? I see it. I, I've hidden it in the back right corner of my lawn. Do I water that tree? No, I don't water that tree. I did water that tree. I don't water that tree anymore because it bears me one grapefruit a year. I can't stand it, right? Because the fruit, the goal of the sower is always what? Fruit. And in the same way, the goal of God in our lives, the lives of his people, is what? Fruit. That we would be fruitful. Kingdom fruitfulness in our lives is his goal. But it's also the third way that we join God in his work. The third way we join him is that we bear true fruit. Bear true fruit. Look at verses 12 through 13. He says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Well, how? It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, what? That my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, we would think that the gospel was advancing in Caesar's palace that what was advancing was the message, right? Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins, being raised again, the hope of heaven. But that's not what's advancing the gospel. All this advancing the gospel is the reputation of Paul's imprisonment. That, that what's spreading is that there's this dude in jail named Paul who's a Christian, and he's joyful in jail. And he is actually serving his guards. And he's actually singing through the night. Um, and he's actually talking about this Jesus character wherever he can get it. And, he, and that he's loving the people around him. And he's truly humble. This Paul character is different than every other prisoner they've ever had in this Roman jail. That is what is spreading throughout the Caesar's palace. And this is exactly what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 2.15. He calls this the aroma of Christ. The aroma of Christ. Right? Imagine a fruit, a sweet-smelling fruit that bears this aroma. He says this, for we, Christian, you, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. So imagine the picture here. You've got this fruit, 
that smells good. It's got this aroma. Where, where's the aroma going to? What's, what's the purpose of it? Who's it going to? To God, right? The aroma is not for the people around. He says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are perishing, right? Paul is not being like Jesus to the guards for their sake. He's not saying, let me put on a real good Jesus show here so that they'll come to know Christ. All he's doing is glorifying his father the same as he did every day of his life. All he's doing is he's being the aroma of Christ to God. He's embodying Christ in his life in order to glorify God, but, but, but he's among people. And so the joy that he's experiencing towards God is being seen by others. The love that he has for God is being seen by others. The peace that he has in God is being seen by others. We, as we embody Christ, we are being, to God, we are being seen and, and smelled and tasted by the people around us. We are among them the aroma of Christ, right? Let me give you an example. How many of you um, buy the seed packages at the store? Anybody? What does it have on the front? A picture of what? A shriveled plant? No, of fruit, of luscious fruit, right? A picture of what you will get if you put that seed in the ground in water, right? They're all lies, okay? They don't work, but that's, that's the goal. It's, it's, it's a picture of what you will get. What, why is that picture there? So you'll buy it and plant the seed. You know God thought of that before Home Depot did, right? It's called a fruit, right? A fruit is just a tasty seed package, right? It is a, it is a real-life picture of what you're going to get if you cut it open and take that seed and you put it in the ground. It's a smelling, tasting, beautiful picture of what that is. It is a seed package. And in the same way, the fruit in the life of a believer is like a seed package, it's an advertisement for the efficacy of the seed. It's saying, hey, if you plant this gospel seed that I'm carrying in your life, then it's going to bear this fruit. You're going to have joy. You're going to have peace. You're going to have love. You're going to have freedom. You're going to have stuff you've never known before if you taste of this fruit. Fruit is an incredible way to sow gospel seeds. But just caveat here, will Paul's good example save anyone? No. It won't. Right? A seedless orange tastes good, but it's useless in giving me oranges, right? I can't take a seedless orange and get oranges. We, people have to hear the seed of the gospel. Our good example does not save anyone. It only whets people's appetite. It makes them want it. It makes them desire it. It makes them see something different in us so that they ask, hey, what, what is that in you? Why are you different? And then what do we do? We share the seed from them. The people in the Imperial Guard weren't close to getting saved. They still needed to hear the seed of the gospel. But, but their appetite was wet for it, and they were ready to hear it. So here's the question. What is true kingdom fruit? What is true kingdom fruit? In order to understand what true fruit is, we need to understand that there is false fruit. Okay? There is false fruit. There is fruit that looks good, and it looks holy, and it looks Christian, and yet it's false. It's fake fruit. Um, in, in the last half of our passage today, Paul gives us a sketch of two groups of people. They're both sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're both winning converts. They're both having a fruitful ministry, right? And yet one group of people is bearing true kingdom fruit, and the other group of people is bearing false kingdom fruit. The first group is preaching the gospel out of goodwill and out of love and out of truth, and they're bearing true, pleasing fruit to the Lord. The other group is sharing it out of selfish ambition and out of envy and out of pretense, and their ministry might look fruitful, but their lives are not. Their fruit is fake. It might look good, it might look pleasing, but it's displeasing to the Lord. And it will not pass the taste test. Let me give you an example. Um, it's like table grapes. All right, anyone born in the 80s or 90s will know what I'm talking about. Table grapes, for the uninitiated, are these grapes that, that people put in the middle of their tables in a, in a pretty basket that look really good. But they're fake, okay? They're fake grapes, table grapes, okay? So I, I distinctly, like, remember this, this core memory in my, in my mind of, of the first time I ate a table grape, okay? Now, lest you think I'm a fool, it was also the last time I ate a table grape. But, so my mom had told me 500 times, Coleman, because she saw it in my eye, Coleman, do not eat the table grapes. Do not eat the table grapes. Do not eat the table grapes, right? And I, and I didn't eat the table grapes for a long time. And, but what I had to do, right, those of you that were born in the 80s and 90s, I, I had to, while I was eating my steamed Brussels sprouts and burnt lima beans, I had to stare at those table grapes, Okay? And eventually, something clicked in me, and I said, I'm going to eat a table grape. It's going to happen. And so one day, my mom wasn't looking. She was in another room. I went, and I 
plucked that grape off that plastic stem, and I popped that thing in my mouth, that dusty table grape. I put it in my mouth, and I chomped down on it, and it was nasty, right? It tasted, it, I mean, it was, it was rubber, right, for, first of all, and it tasted like bouncy balls, okay? It's literally, I, I have this distinct memory in my head. Why? It's fake. It's false. It wasn't real. And like I said before, the world is longing for real. The world is longing for genuine, for authentic. They're tired of empty advertisements. So what causes one Christian to bear true fruit, good fruit, real grapes, and the other Christian to bear fake fruit, rubber, bouncy ball, table grapes? What is the difference? Paul points us to two sets of principles that are at work in the hearts of believers that are producing true or false fruit. Now I want you to notice what I just said. In the hearts of believers, we're not talking about unbelievers and believers here, okay? Unbelievers, sure, they produce bad fruit all the time, but what he's talking about here, as a Christian, can you bear bad fruit sometimes? Oh yeah, can you bear false fruit? Yes, we can. There are these two principles, sets of principles in operation within us, and this is the first set. Look in verse 16 with me. The latter, those who are preaching from goodwill, good fruit, do it, preach, out of love. The latter, do it out of love. And then look at verse 17. The former, envious ones, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. So you have these two competing principles, out of love and out of selfish ambition. And before we look at what those words mean, look at where they come from. The phrase, out of, is listed in both places. One person is bearing fruit by sharing the gospel out of love. The other is bearing fruit by sharing the gospel out of selfish ambition. And those words, out of, refer to the source. Where is that action coming from? So we have an outward activity, sharing the gospel, a behavior, a good behavior. But, but we have a source for that activity. And where do all of our activities and behaviors start? In our heart, right? The heart is the wellspring of life. It is where our actions, attitudes, and behaviors all stem from. And he's saying that though the outward action, the outward behavior, sharing the gospel, was good, it was the same, it was the same action, same gospel, same fruit, ministry, the intent of the heart is radically different. And thus, one person is producing false fruit, and another is producing true fruit. So let's look at the principle first of selfish ambition. What is selfish ambition? Selfish ambition is the inner drive that I be pleased, promoted, and praised. Okay? Selfish ambition is this inner drive that I, myself, would be pleased, promoted, and praised. The Christian bearing false fruit had hearts that were intent on who? Themselves. Self-centered. They're wanting to please themselves, promote themselves, praise themselves. They're self-referenced. Their whole world, it's like when we thought the earth was the center of the universe, their whole world revolves around them. Let me tell you, because some of you are thinking right now, man, I know some self-referenced people. I know some selfish people, right? Anybody thinking that right now? I was thinking that when I read this passage. Um, but let me tell you, that's you, okay? That's me. That's all of us. Ever since the fall, th- this operating system of selfish ambition has been in, at work in all of us, full tilt. Like this selfishness in you is, is churning along nicely in your life. And it has been ever since you were born. You ever, you ever had a two-year-old around you? Selfish ambition, right? Everything in them wants for them to be pleased and promoted and praised. Like they long for that. And guess what? We do too. Whether you're two, you're 20, or you're 200. Like we all long for that in our lives, right? That's what Paul said um, in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He said that Christ died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, right? Christ died to set us free from our selfish ambition. And if I do not allow the good news of Jesus to humble me, to to take me down a notch, to let me look out for myself, and I will merely use Christianity to please myself, promote myself, and praise myself, just like I use everything else in my life. If you don't allow the gospel to do deep work inside of you, then you will use your faith just like you use everything for yourself. And these falsely religious people were doing Christian activities rightly, but they were doing it from the wrong intent. They weren't wrong in their doing. They were wrong in their being at their very core. So how do I destroy selfish ambition in my life? There needs to be another principle in operation inside of you. You don't kill selfish ambition by by punching it. By trying to stamp it out, you do it by introducing another principle into your heart. And that principle is love. 
The latter do it out of love. Out of love. The source of their fruit was love. It's not that they were being loving. It's not that they were doing it in a loving way. It's that at the very core, it was coming out of love. The, the wellspring of their gospel sharing was love itself. It was to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when I seek to please promote and praise God, when I, when I, when I slow down and I think, God, what, what praises God? What would please God in this moment? How do I promote the name of Jesus? When I start slowing down and wanting to love God, what do I see? I see that he is deeply at work in loving the people around me. I see that he's doing deep work in, in my neighbor. He's doing deep work in my family member I haven't talked to in four years. He's doing deep work in my friends. He's doing deep work in my infuriating two-year-old or my three-nager or whatever it is or, or my 15-year-old or whatever. He's doing deep work. That's what God's up to. And then I join him in that work of loving them. Paul puts wheels on this in Philippians 2 in the next chapter. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. So how do I love those around me? First, in humility, you count them as more significant than yourself. You see that God actually really cares about that person. Regardless of how much you don't like them or how frustrating they are for you, God, care, God values them. They're significant in his eyes. And then instead of seeking your own interests, you seek out their interests. That is what it looks like to operate in love. And when we operate out of love, selfish ambition is stifled in our lives. You want to start killing fruit in your life? Start by seeing other people as significant. You want to start killing selfish ambition in your life? Start by seeking their interests and not seeking your own. So the first difference between the true and false fruit is the intent of our hearts. The activity and behavior is the same. The intent is different. The next comparison is not about intent. It's about appearance, about presentation. It's about how we posture ourselves in front of others. And this is the comparison. Look in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. So there's two ways that we can do our activity, that we can live our Christian life. In pretense or in truth. Pretense here is the word profano. Phano means to show, all right, or to appear, and pro means before. And so profano, or pretense, means to appear shiny before other people, right? To, to appear like a show. It's like you're putting on a show in front of the people around you. In Philippians 2, that passage we just read is called vain conceit. Vain, all about me, conceit, pride. It is this desire to put on a front so that we can lift ourselves up in front of other people. If selfish ambition makes the table grapes, then pretension dusts them off and arranges them in the bowl, right? It's, it's the thing in us that wants, just desperately wants for us to look good in front of other people. Let me tell you something. Pretense most of the time does not involve directly lying, okay? It doesn't involve you saying, hey, like, look at me, look what I'm doing, and lying to other people. As a matter of fact, it kind of happens on its own. It's like religious pretense is like, um, I don't have to lie to you and tell you that I study my Bible every day. I just need some back pocket scripture memory verses that I just pull out at random times. And then I just allow that impression just to sit there, right? Or I don't have to tell you that I'm a pastor that, um, that prays daily for our church. I just have to seem like a pastor that prays, right? Or I have to tell you, hey, I'm praying for you, right? And, and yeah, I'm praying for that. Or I prayed for you, I prayed for you, I prayed for you. I just have drip, drip little words here and there. And I just allow you to think that I'm a pastor that prays a lot for our church. And allow you to run with that impression, Right? I don't have to be um, this person that, I don't have to lie to you and tell you, hey, um, I'm, I'm really patient with my kids. I just have to, like, be really kind to my kids when I'm around you, right? So that you think at home I'm, I'm super nice to them. Or I don't, have to, I don't have to, like, tell you, hey, I'm really loving to my wife. I just have to show you that while she's here, I'm really kind to her. And then allow you to think, that's pretense, right? It is allowing an impression to be made and allowing other people to keep that impression. And we do that so often. And however pretty or encouraging your good example might be, it stinks. It is rotten to the core, and God hates it. God hates pretense. You know who is pretentious? Is the Pharisees. Jesus said that they, um, they prayed on street corners. They memorized the whole Torah. They taught other people the word. They gave alms. They gave a lot of their money. They went across seas to make disciples of other people. Like, spent their money, spent years to cross seas, oceans, to make disciples of other people. And yet, what does he say about them? 
He says they're like whitewashed tombs. Pretty on the outside, on the inside, they're full of dead people's bones, Jesus said, in all uncleanness. Christ hates pretension. He hates it. It's like a whitewashed tomb. And the, the pretentious voice inside of you and me is saying, yeah, I know some pretentious people. But the reality is, is that you're the pretentious person, okay? Who is the only person you can spot pretension in? You. You can't see someone else's heart. You could, but you could spot pretension in yourself. And let me tell you how. If I knocked on your life, would it be hollow? Makes for a good watermelon, but a terrible Christian, right? Or, or let's say I did this. Let's say I did a straw poll, and, and I sent out a survey to all the people you know in this room and asked them what your prayer life looked like, what your Bible reading looked like, how patient you were with your kids, how loving you were to your wife, how well you worked in your office, how, how, in, how full of integrity you are with your finances. I asked them all that. Would their answers be vastly different than the reality? Would their answers be overinflated because the impression that you're giving off from your life is far greater than the reality of your life? That is pretension, and we are so prone to it, especially Christians. Especially Christians, we are so prone to pretension. Right? So what is the antidote to pretension? How do I destroy pretension in my life? In verse 18, we need another principle at operation within us, and that principle is truth, sincerity. That word truth, aletheia, is used in a specific context. It means truth, but here it means this. Let me read you the definition. That candor, candor, think candid, real, that realness, that candor of mind, which is free from affectation, pretense, simulation, falsehood, and deceit. Sincerity of mind and integrity of character. Paul isn't saying that these other Christians are speaking the truth. When he says that, whether in pretense or in truth. He's not saying they're speaking the truth. He's saying they are true. In and of themselves, they are true. They are being true to who they are. They are being sincere, right? They are careful that as far as it depends on them, they are leaving the right impression with the people around them. So how do we do this? I'll tell you how we often do this. We often try to make our insides match our outside, right? We, we try to, we think, man, I... I, I am this way, but people think I'm this way, so I just need to become this way. I, I, I need to grow into my caricature. I, I need to grow into my avatar. I, I need to, man, I, I need to be, pray every day. I need to read my Bible. I need to share the gospel with my friends. I need to be loving, so I'm just going to do it, right? And how do we do it? We do it through Bible reading plans and resolutions, and we do it through accountability groups, and we do it through worship music, and we do it through all kinds of stuff. We get ourselves pumped up, and how long does that last? Two weeks? Two months, six months, I don't care how long it lasts. What will happen? Collapses in on itself, right? It will eventually deflate because it's not real. The true person, the sincere person, tears down the caricature. They don't try to live into it. They tear it down, right? They say, no, 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 that cardboard cut out of me is not me. This is me, right? They're, 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 they're earnest they want to embody humility and meekness and lowliness in, in their life. They want to give an accurate and true impression of themselves. Why is this a big deal? Why does Paul care so much about pretension and vain conceit in our lives? Because you cannot bear good fruit from a fake tree. Okay? I don't care how much you try. You cannot bear fruit from a fake tree. You can glue your fruits to your fake tree all you want, but they will always taste like what? A table grape, right? I don't care how pretty that fruit looks on your tree. It will, never, it will never be real. It will never taste real. And believe it or not, the real you, with all of the ugly, unredeemed places of your life, is a far better gospel witness than all of the caricatures of yourself ever will be. Okay? And I don't care if you're a one grapefruit Christian. Okay? If, if that's all you got, that one grapefruit is better than a thousand fake fruits stapled onto your tree. I promise you, that one real fruit will bear a, a, a field full of righteousness if you'll allow it in your life. Will you be real? God is not interested in working on your fake tree. He's interested in redeeming and restoring and healing your real fruit, your real tree, who you really are. So where do I start? I'm just going to conclude with this. How do I become a Christian that bears true kingdom fruit? I didn't say how do I be it's not how you be this tomorrow. How do you become this? How do you get on the road to becoming this kind of Christian? How do I trust the sower? How do I cast gospel seeds? It goes back to Philippians 1.7. 
After Paul said that the Philippian church was partnering with him in the gospel, he said, I'm sure of this, that God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. In other words, you're going to continue to bear good fruit. Why? Why is Paul so sure of this? Verse 7, because you are partakers with me of grace. You are partakers with me of grace. The only way to have the principles of love and sincerity in operation in your life is to become a partaker of grace. And to know that God is not just working around you, he's working in you. He's not just your master, he's your father. He is deeply interested in you and what he's doing inside of you. The only way that you're going to become loving towards other people is if you find yourself secure in God's love for you. Right? That you don't have to look out for your own interests any longer because God is. So you're free to start looking out for the interests of the people around you. You don't have to defend your reputation any longer because God loves you. And God knows you. And God is pleased with you. And you so you can begin looking outward and, and caring for the people around you. You don't have to use other people or use your religion any longer because you are partaker of God's grace. And the only way that you're going to become sincere and true with other people is if you are actively experiencing God's mercy and grace in the areas of failure in your life. That's the only way you're going to be true. The only way you're going to be sincere. Because if you're not experiencing God's grace and forgiveness in those broken areas, then you're going to be scared to death to open those areas up to other people. Will you be sincere? Will you take of his grace? That is God's or Paul's invitation to you today and God's as well. We love because he first loved us. We love other people because we are a partaker of his grace. We slow down and cast gospel seeds through our lives, our listening and our lips, because God slowed down with us, and he still does slow down with us today. That's the invitation of our passage. So will you join the sower in his kingdom work? Will you begin on the next step? Next step might be tearing down the, the caricatures. The next step might be sharing the gospel. The next step might be, might be living for Christ in your life. What will you do? What is God calling you to tomorrow on the path to becoming a fruitful Christian? Let me pray. God, send us out. God, not as fake Christians, not as those who look pretty and shiny and fruitful, not as those who have winsome sales pitches and eloquent words, but God, send us out as the redeemed of the Lord, not the perfected of the Lord, not the pretty of the Lord, the redeemed, those who are broken and hurting and wounded and sinful and yet are redeemed by your grace, whom you've drawn near to yourself, whom you've made sons and daughters. How we can love because you first loved us. We can sow gospel seeds because you've first sown those gospel seeds in our life. God, we, we were broken just like the broken people around us. We were hurting just like the hurting people around us. We were frustrating just like the frustrating people around us. God, would you allow us, empower us to be partakers of your grace so we can carry your gospel, your good story to the people in our lives. So Jesus, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.